0: Why don't we turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to take a a brief excursus here. Romans chapter 1. Lord, we are just encouraged. Christ assure and steady anchor. Lord, we... As things change and as rulers change and come and go and movements change and philosophies change, Lord, we're just so grateful we have Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Where would the people of God go but to you? And so we pray, Father, that uh, this morning would be eye-opening, would be life-changing, that we would trust again in the work and the person of Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that you would do this and help us do that mysterious work, Holy Spirit, taking the things of Christ, glorifying him, making making sinners able to see his beauty, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk about the legacy from Martin Luther. And we're not to be confused with Martin Luther King, okay? We're talking about Martin Luther, the German scholar and priest. Because October 31st often marks a day for celebration for many in the U.S. Oftentimes, it's costumes and pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns and candy and trick-or-treating and all that. It's fine and dandy and a little bit too much candy. Sometimes. But for Christians, and I think it's good for us to understand our history, for Christians, one particular October 31st has significant meaning. October 31st, 1517, a monk and a scholar by the name of Martin Luther nailed what was known as his 95 Theses. To the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. What does that mean to us? Why do we have to know this history? Why should it change us? Well, this momentous day, many historians would say, sparked the Protestant Reformation. And I think it's good for us to see that and to understand this. It is, again, it is Reformation Sunday. Happy Reformation Sunday, by the way. This momentous day, many historians would say, sparked the Protestant Reformation. While, of course, there were other men who were precursors, such as John Wycliffe and Jan Hus. Many would agree, Luther's protest of the excesses of the Catholic Church started a fire reforming, or what we would say, going back to the scriptures as the final arbiter of belief And practice of our lives. One of the major excesses of corruption. At the time in the 1500's. Was the selling of indulgences. The Catholic Church taught that when most folks died. Their souls would go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory was a a midway place between heaven and hell. And due to amounts of to different amounts of a person's sin if a person sinned a lot and they were in this purgatory sometimes they would stay in purgatory for quite a long time now what the roman catholic church was teaching was that if your dead relative was in purgatory you can get them out faster by paying what was called indulgences Indulgences were granted by priests and sold to the people concerned with their dead relatives. And and the people who were who are going to these Catholic churches didn't know any better. Why? Because they didn't even have the Bible in their own language. In thesis number 27 of the 95 theses that he nailed on the church as a protest, Luther wrote and condemned those who preached only, this is quote, Only human doctrines who say that as soon, this is what they would teach. As soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Do you understand the corruption in that? Your mom's dead, you want her to get out of purgatory, and the priest is telling you, well, you need to pay in the chest. You need to put money into the chest, and the soul, as soon as it clinks in, the soul will fly out of purgatory. That is where Luther stated greed and avarice increased. See, when we look at the at the contributions of the life of Luther, and he was not a perfect guy. He was rude and boorish at many times, right? But I think he was a man for that time. When, I, when we look at the contributions of the life of Luther, I was just kind of thinking and looking at the history and the legacy he left to believers here in 2021. We are actually... Benefactors of the legacy that he left. Okay, some 500 years ago, later we can be grateful for many important teachings from Luther. Uh, one of the main things that we see is the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Before, it used to be the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church and whatever the Roman Catholic Church would say, rather than the Bible being the final arbiter of what is to be believed and what is to be practiced. He said it's it's the Bible not the pope it was revolutionary. He also said that the importance of having a translated version of the Bible in the common language so everyone would have a Bible. See, many of us have Bibles maybe 5 6 copies at home. Sadly some covered with dust that you need to kind of brush off and read, right? They didn't. This allows congregations or peoples that were collecting for the worship of God to be manipulated by false or non-existent teachings such as purgatory. There's no text in the Bible, by the way, for, for purgatory. The importance of having services in the common language at that time, they would, the priest would uh, pronounce a homily in Latin and no one spoke Latin. So there was no spiritual benefit. No one was being encouraged. No one was being convicted of sin. No one was being confronted with the claims of the gospel. There was a... uh, Luther also brought up the unbiblical teaching of purgatory and indulgences. What we talked about. The importance of pastors studying in the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. Why? So that you can hold fast to the faith. So that when someone else teaches a false teaching. We can look clearly at the text of what the Greek and the Hebrew says. The freedom of pastors to be married. They didn't believe, uh, they believed that when you became into the ministry that you had to take a vow of celibacy that must be taken by priests. But that's never taught in the scriptures. And even at that time, believe it or not, there was rampant sexual sin in the monasteries. It was known that priests were getting nuns pregnant in the monasteries. But one of the most important teachings we have in enjoying the legacy handed down by Luther is rediscovering the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This is one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. This is what we have to cling to. This defines Christianity itself. So what does a German monk have to do with me? That's what it has to do with me. These were interrelated. If you took the authoritative scriptures of what they taught, you would quickly find there's no such teaching of superstitions such as purgatory. You would believe that your faith in Christ is all that justified you. Thus you would not be manipulated to buying indulgences, but justification addresses the very essence of what does it mean to be a Christian? Not by sacraments, not by penance. But simply by faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Gospel 101. See, the free gift of grace will be buried, brothers and sisters, you have to understand. The free gift of grace will be buried by each generation under a morass of dead works and religion. Every generation is trying to bury it. It was in Paul's day, it was in Luther's day, and it is in ours. Man loves a God he can placate simply with simple rituals. If I could just do these rituals, then I'm okay with God. It'll assuage my guilt. I won't feel anything anymore. A God that that man can ultimately manipulate. A God ultimately made in man's image, not the other way around. Man loves a salvation, a justification that he himself can earn because it strokes his pride. I did that. I got myself to heaven. I'm not as bad as that person. I didn't kill anyone. Ask anyone on the street. If, uh, if, we're, if you were to die tonight, are you going to go to heaven or hell? 90% of them would say heaven. Why? Because I didn't kill anyone. And their justification, their understanding of salvation is because they didn't kill anybody. A works-based righteousness, let me tell you guys. A works-based righteousness only leads to despair, disillusion, and no ultimate rest. You will not have rest for your souls. That is not what God has given us. This is why Jason read in Psalm 32, and the first line that David says is what? Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, done, paid for. This is is not so with Christ. You don't have to live in despair and disillusion. And an unrestfulness. Christ's gospel of free grace grants total justification in the sight of God. In other words, God saves believers by faith and not by any good work that they can do. If you're thinking, if I do this, and if I go to church, and if I do this, then God will look at me favorably. You don't understand the gospel. And you're standing on shaky ground. So with that, I will preach something of part of a sermon, part of a biography. Of the story of Martin Luther, this Reformation Sunday. I've never done this before, so pray for me. I'm going to preach a text that Christ used to save Luther and to help him be an agent to recover historic, grace-given, gospel-driven Christianity. So go in Romans chapter 1, we know the text, verses 16 and 17. The famous text that Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. God has given this passage to you so you would fully rest in being justified by faith in the person and work of Christ alone. So you would fully rest in being justified by faith in the person and work of Christ alone. When I say fully rest... I'm not talking about once you're saved, you don't do anything for the kingdom or his church. Sometimes I think people misunderstand me when I say fully rest in Jesus. To be clear, what I mean to say is to fully trust in the basis, the basis of your salvation, being faith in Christ. That's it. We're talking basis, not perpetual inaction. Okay? Oh, I trust in Christ, I rest in Christ, so I'm going to rest on the couch and not do anything. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the basis of your salvation. Luther, who taught this, uh, uh, and as he found it in scripture, he preached sometimes three to four times a week. He lectured, wrote articles. He was anything but lazy. But as far as the basis, this is what we're saying, of salvation, there is nothing any person could or should contribute. It could only Be faith in Christ. This rest is a rest from thinking you have to earn God's favor. You're not going to make it. We cannot meet his holy, holy, holy standard. You remember this God we serve? He says in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy. That's how he's described us. That's how he describes himself. There is no way. I look in the mirror. I know what I've done. I know what, I, what I've thought. I know, I know the actions of what I've done in the past and the people I've hurt and the sins I've committed. I deserve hell forever. How am I going to meet that standard? I can't. But Christ can. Christ can. He says... Why did he have to come? Well, he says here, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, euangelion, means good news. You know, apart from Christ himself, all we have is bad news. It's kind of like when I turn on the TV. All I have is bad news. The bad news is this. it It runs deeper than that. It's... All of humanity has been made for the express purpose of glorifying God. Magnifying and extolling his greatness and his goodness. And all of mankind has turned away in sin. All of us. Every single one of us. Chasing your own desires over that of the commands of God. Chasing our own devices and our own lusts and our own sins. And for this reason, God states in the Bible that God, that man is condemned to an eternity of hell because of the greatness of the person we have offended people will say why is it that i have to spend eternity in hell if i have sinned against god it's the person you have offended it is a high and holy cr- it is a high and blatant crime against a holy god god the father then doesn't leave us that way he sends his son Sent his son to put on flesh, to bear the sins of man. Jesus' life, he lived a perfectly righteous life. His death paid for our sins. His burial and resurrection proved who he was. And his ascension, now that he is finished, he is ascended on high. Satisfies the wrath of God. We cannot meditate on this truth enough. This is absolutely practical when you feel you keep messing up. You got got to understand. You keep sinning. I keep shouting at my kids. I keep saying wrong things to my wife. I keep keep saying wrong things to my husband. I I keep thinking about that sin I did in the past. Oh, let me tell you, there is no relief except that of Christ. Then those who place their complete trust in the person and work of Jesus will be saved. You see, this is justification by faith alone. This is why it's so central to Christianity, to the certainty of believers. To say that I am sure I am going to heaven. Now folks will look at you and say, how can you say that? You must be very prideful. If it were up to me, yes, I would be prideful. If I did earn it, yes, that would be prideful. But if someone else earned it, someone else paid for it, someone else suffered for it, and I come, the Bible says that we have to come with faith, and all faith is is a trusting with your hands open, making no negotiations, and dropping your weapon against God. We deserve the very wrath of God for our sins of commission, the sins we have done for our sins of omission, the good things we should have done but we didn't do, and the sins of nature. The Bible says that our very nature revolts against the authority of God. I don't want to be told what to do by anyone. That's the heartbeat of a person apart from Christ. The Bible says, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. See, we all deserve his eternal wrath. That's the bad news. But the good news, the fantastic news, the freeing news, the gracious news is this. That God sent his only son, born of a virgin, to absorb all of the punishment you deserve and will deserve. He paid it all such that the righteous indignation and wrath that you deserved was placed on Christ. And Christ's merit and his righteousness was placed on you. This is only applied when you exercise faith in him and stop trying to earn it. See, this is precisely why Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of this good news. Where they're ashamed means to be embarrassed or to hesitate or to lack courage to stand up. This is the same gospel, brothers and sisters, that Paul rested in amidst death threats. Therefore, he was not ashamed. This was the same gospel Buried in medievalism and recovered by Luther amidst all his death threats. Therefore, he was not ashamed. This is the same gospel I preach to you this morning, which you rest in. Amen. Which you rest in. Therefore, you too, O oh saint, will have the courage to not be ashamed. It's not going to we can't anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe here I stand I could do no other so help me God that's what gives us strength brothers and sisters Paul and Luther rested in the gospel and were not ashamed because they knew it was God's power you just think about your own life If you are here and you are a Christian, what changed you? Was it a program? Was it crystal ball with lights? Was it smoke? Was it purple lights? Was it any of that? It was the simple gospel truth that someone told you and you were transformed. And you're the tra- tra- trajectory of your life, you were going one way and now you're going the complete different way. You see, I think sometimes we, we think we could force people to change by just twisting them. Gripping them. Trying to make things in their life to be in that way. We cannot, have you, have you finally realized you cannot change anyone You can't save anyone. You can't make someone more holy. It's got to be the work of God working through the gospel. As proclaimed in scripture. And when God saves and when he changes through the gospel. It is evident. Isn't it? There's a change in direction, a change in allegiance. I follow the world, now I follow Christ. I love the things of the world, now I follow the things of Christ. I love the people of the world, now I follow the people of Christ. Number two. So number one, the gospel is the power of God. Number two, the gospel grants salvation. 16b. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for salvation. The word there means to be delivered. To be made safe. To rescue. It was a rescuing of the penalty of sin that we deserved. All over scripture we see that there is judgment. Judgment. That when you die at the end of your death, there will be judgment. And it's called hell. It is a real place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation it says, and their smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And Paul says later on in Thessalonians, We wait for the Son of God from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The gospel rescues. Oh, parents, you must weep for your children and pray for them. Who else would? Who else is going to pray for the soul of your kids? This is war, we were reminded in our men's meeting. This is war. Please understand. And we fight with the gospel and with love and with prayer and with pleading. Luther understood this before Luther was saved God convicted his heart of sin and he knew he needed salvation in 1505 this is before he posted you remember the 95 Theses. this is before he was saved Luther was what we what we call conviction this is what the Holy Spirit does John chapter 14 says he comes to convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment this is before salvation So you could be convicted and not be saved. You absolutely can. That's why we have so many people who come to church. They hear preaching. They weep because of their sin. And there's no change. They were convicted but not converted. We need to pray for God to finish that work. And so what happened with Luther in 1505. He received his MA in the summer. And he was studying law. And on July 2nd he was traveling home from law school He was going to be a lawyer, and he was caught in a thunderstorm, and he fell to the ground because of the lightning. The lightning, and he was terrified, and as an unbeliever, as an unbeliever, he knew he was guilty before God. There are folks who are like this. There are many folks who think, oh, I'm okay. I don't need that Christ. I didn't kill anybody. That's their line. And then there's other folks who you talk to who know what they've done. I asked him, and I'm quite surprised when I asked him, and I go, where are you going when you die? He goes, I'm going to hell. I know what I've done. You ever ever share the gospel with people like that? They're so down and out, and they know they messed up. And this is where this monk was. Terrified. He knew he was guilty before a holy God. He feared for his soul. And he did not know the grace of the justification by faith, so he tried to earn favor with God. That's what man does. He wants religion. He wants steps to do things. He wants self-reformation, not transformation that only comes from God. He wants to say, "I did it." And so he said, "Help me, Saint Anne," was praying to us, praying to one of the saints. Help me, St. Anne, I will be a monk. And the next day, he left the pursuit of law to become a monk. And it would not be until years later when studying Romans 1 16 and 17, the text you have in your hand, when he finally was saved and trusted in Christ alone. This same one, brothers and sisters. He later said that trying to be a monk was a sin, not worth a farthing. That's a coin. The gospel is powerful. The gospel grants salvation. And the gospel connects through faith. Verse 16c. He says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. So I know it's going to work. I know when it's proclaimed, it's going to have its perfect effect. And to everyone who believes, how does it make its connection? How does it connect to people? How is the gospel applied and how does it transform lives? It says to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone, this is wonderful, Jew or Greek, I love this. No matter what background you're from. No matter what ethnicity you're from. No matter what economic background you came out of. Educational, societal status. The Bible says the gospel is for you. Were you just to believe it. It doesn't matter if your parents were broken up when you're younger. It doesn't matter if you come from a broken family. Or you come from a solid family. It doesn't matter. Everyone, the Bible says, everyone who believes will be saved. He says the gospel is available to everyone who believes. The word to believe is to entrust. It's not just a, a faint recognition, it's not an intellectual assent. It is of me placing my trust in him. Look at Romans 10 9, same book. Romans 10. He says it again. People ask me, How do you become saved? Oh, well, let me show you what the Bible says. he says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, brothers and sisters. There's nothing you have to do. You can't earn his salvation. The Bible says all you have to do is trust in him. Look at this. He even furthers it. You need to go to Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Also written by Paul. In Galatians chapter 2. He writes in verse 16. It's like he was writing to us. Just in case we got confused. Just in case you get confused of what justification means. Justification means God's wrath is satisfied when he looks upon Christ. And you have faith in Christ. He looks upon Christ. And his righteousness is credited to your account. And your sin is credited on him. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified. See, he's just trying to make us understand It's not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not what you do. It's faith. He says it again. How many times does he say it in one verse? Even we have believed in Christ Jesus. The same word for faith. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law. Okay. Two times. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times, he says it over and over and over, you can't earn salvation. And every generation and every church, if they're going to preach the free gospel of grace, the justification by faith in Christ alone, you have to hold this candle. You got to hold the baton. It's our turn now. Not CRT. Not. What you do with masks. Not COVID. Not LGBTQ. None of that. We are to hold the gospel of grace. That's the mission of the church brothers and sisters. It is nothing in my hand I bring. What is it? Simply what? Church? Simply what? To the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross. I, the gospel is powerful. The gospel grants salvation. The gospel connects through faith. It has to be faith. Why? Because faith says, I come with nothing. I come with nothing. I just trust you. It has to be faith. Why? Because grace is a gift. And if you earn it, it is no longer a gift. You worked for it. And the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, and9, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest any man what, boast." Fourth, the gospel provides righteousness. This is amazing. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith. And what happens is God's righteousness in Christ Jesus is credited to us. And we start to live a life after that. And we become more of who we are in Christ. We're not perfect. Christians are not perfect. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to go to church because there's so many hypocrites. I don't know any church without hypocrites. Or or I don't I don't want I want to go to a church where there's no hypocrites. I want to go to a perfect one. Well, don't join it because once you get in there you're going to mess it up. The church is for messed up people. Do you know that? The church is for sinners who've been redeemed. The church is for those who know they are condemned. The church are those uh, is for those who have messed up their lives. Maybe God can make something beautiful out of it. He can. Go to Second Corinthians 5. You have to look at this classic text. This is called the golden exchange, the wonderful exchange. It is almost, it is so out of this world, you will think, how could this be? Why? And you will be thinking of this, if you are a believer, you will be thinking of this for all of eternity. Verse 21. He made him. That is God the Father. Made him. That is Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin. To be sin on our behalf. What is he saying? He's saying, God the Father. Made Christ who knew no sin. That is, he had no acquaintance with sin. He never sinned. Hebrew says, says that he's been tempted in all things, yet never sinned. He says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What does that mean? It means he put our sins on him. And then it says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And He took the very righteousness of Christ and credited it to our bankrupt account. Such that when God looks at you, He doesn't look at you at your very best. He he looks at you as as the very best of what His Son has done. The righteousness of Christ Himself. The perfect righteousness. You see, this haunted Martin Luther. In his preface to the complete edition of his Latin writings, he wrote this account about his own testimony. In March, chapter five, uh, March 5th, 1545, this was a year before his death. This is what Martin Luther wrote. He said, I had indeed... Been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistles to the Romans. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, the one we're looking at. He says, In it the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God which according to the use and custom of all the teachers I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness as they called it with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Okay, so this is what Luther is saying. The root of the word "deciosis" okay, means to justify or it means righteousness, okay. And so what uh, what Luther was saying is, when I looked at it, everyone was teaching me that the word righteousness is the standard by which God judges me. Which, when you look at the text, that's not what he's talking about at all. But all he ever learned was, oh, it is the righteousness that by which he judges me. And so, uh, so Luther said, I hated that word righteous. And... Let me tell you, if you are trusting in your own works, you will hate that word too. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, this is Luther, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel, threatening us with His righteous wrath. And so... Luther could not see, he could not see past what his teachers were teaching him. But if we look closely, that's not what the righteousness by which he judges, it's the righteousness by which he gives, isn't that right? That's what we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. So then Luther says this, Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place. That means he just kept studying, kept studying. Most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith. Is righteous. Shall live. <coughs> there. I began to understand. That the righteousness of God. Is that by which. The righteous lives. The righteous lives. By a gift of God. Namely by faith. And this is the meaning. And this is what Luther landed on. The righteousness of God. Is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. So it was not God's righteousness by which he judges people. It's clear from the context. We see it here. It's the righteousness that he gives to us based on Christ. And then Luther says this. Here I felt that I was altogether born again. Amen. Amen. And had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory... And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. That's why Reformation Day matters. It's been recovered for his people Such that tonight when you go to bed, you know, if you are a child of God, all of my sins have been paid for in Christ. I can sleep now. I can face another day. All your accusations of me are actually true. They're true. And I deserve hell. But there's a Christ who paid for me. And there you go. Dear Saint, that's how we all enter what Luther says, into paradise. Do you know this Christ? Are your sins forgiven? Have you been transformed? Are you trusting in mom's faith or dad's faith or your relative's faith or your grandpa was a pastor or something like that or your mom... Your mom served in the church. Are you trusting in that? Or are you trusting in the full righteousness that Christ grants through justification by faith in God? The same Christ who saves by his gospel is yours now. Rest in a gospel that is powerful, that saves, that links by faith, and that provides the very spotless righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just pray we are still astounded at the gospel. Let us never get past the gospel. It's not for kitty Sunday school. It's for all Christians. It's for unbelievers who don't know you. Lord, we pray if there are some here who don't know you, I pray you would convict their hearts. May they run to the Savior who grants full and complete forgiveness because of what Christ has done. Help us to rest in the scriptures. Help us to not be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, we pray. Help us to sing this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.